Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? Our guest today is Henry Gordon Smith, the founder and CEO of Agritecture, an urban agriculture consulting firm. Henry has become the world's go-to expert in urban agriculture. His expertise spanning from community gardens to high-rise, high-intensity hydroponic agriculture. I thought Henry would be a good person to talk with about the importance of developing resilient local food supplies to counter the increasing impacts that climate change is having on our existing industrial food system. In 2011, Henry started agritecture.com, a media platform covering the news, business, and design of how agriculture integrates with the built environment. Following that, in 2013, Henry co-founded the Association for Vertical Farming, and then in 2014, he started Agritecture Consulting, an urban agriculture consultancy assisting over 86 clients in 21 countries, including entrepreneurs, multinational companies, architecture firms, municipalities, and educational institutions. Most recently, in 2017, Henry co-founded AgTechX, a Brooklyn-based urban agriculture incubator. In all his pursuits, Henry says he is motivated by achieving triple bottom line success, success that is measured by its positive impact on people, the planet, and profitability. In today's podcast interview, I have a wide-ranging conversation with Henry about the challenges and opportunities for urbanizing food production, where aquaponics fits in, new techniques and technologies, and what gives Henry hope in the face of the enormous climate change challenges we now face. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And if you do, please rate us on iTunes and also consider becoming a podcast patron. You can find our Patreon page by clicking on the link on the podcast app at the bottom of the episode notes or on our webpage. Henry, welcome to the podcast. In the introduction, I provide our listeners with a brief biography of your career to date. Clearly, you're passionate about sustainability and sustainable food production. So why don't we start off by you talking about how you became interested in both sustainability and sustainable urban food production and how it grew to become your career. Yeah, thanks, Craig. I'm so excited to be on this podcast. So my passion for local and sustainable agriculture really stemmed from my political science studies at the University of British Columbia. While studying that, I started looking at Vancouver's Greenest City 2020 plan. And what I found was that there were great initiatives around solar panels, EVs, water management, waste management, but there was no concrete plan to protect and create a resilient food supply for the city into the future. And I thought this was very curious and interesting. I thought, well, food is obviously a critical part of sustainability. It's obviously something that cities need to be green and resilient. Why isn't it included? And in my conversations with city leaders, I found that they simply didn't understand agriculture and they didn't understand the differences. 
How does a greenhouse perform? How does a vertical farm perform? How does a soil-based farm perform? And many of them were kind of just shocked by the idea that we would grow food in the city and only considered urban agriculture, for example, to be community gardens, when it can be much, much more than that. And so I found this as a very specific gap and opportunity to share knowledge and to accelerate the ability for leaders in cities to adapt to climate change through urban agriculture. And so I started a blog and I started sharing best practices and I started contrasting different models to each other in what I call a kind of technology agnostic typology sort of format. And that blog essentially became popular and started the rest of this journey, which maybe was mentioned in my uh, introduction. I think a number of listeners will probably be wondering what exactly is meant by the term urban agriculture. Why don't you expand on this? So urban agriculture refers to the production, um, distribution, and even other supporting elements like processing of food within an urban environment. And when we think about within an urban environment, that not only includes the city center, so not just Manhattan, but also all the five boroughs around Manhattan, and even some of the peri-urban areas. These are kind of the edges where the um, end of the city and the beginning of the rural environment begin, where there's kind of a mixture of gaps between larger spaces and urban development spaces, maybe suburban spaces. All of that is included within the definition of urban agriculture. So it's really about you know, local and hyper-local food production, very close to the city and embedded into the city's tapestry. And as I mentioned earlier, it's not just about production, it's also about things like food hubs or maybe specialty cooperative markets. And so in that context, it's really about looking at the food system and how various components can provide resilience. So all the pieces of the puzzle. As a way of framing our conversation today, I think it would be very helpful for listeners to have you talk about what you think are the really big challenges facing the world in maintaining a sustainable food supply in the face of the escalating climate change impacts, as well as what you see are some of the big opportunities for meeting these challenges? Yeah, it's a great question. Just a small question. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great question. And certainly um, the world is very diverse. So, you know, it, it depends on the context of where they are. But let me try and break it down to some of the biggest ones that I think. I think um, the first one is really the threat of climate change on stable environments for agricultural production. So, you know, agriculture performs outdoors based on certain environmental conditions, the right amount of water, the right amount of temperature, the right seasonality. That is now shifting. And what that's doing is it's affecting the way pests move through the environment. It's affecting seasonality and when crops are going to be ready. It's affecting the need to put additional inputs into it. It's affecting the availability of water. It's also actually even affecting the nutrition. We're seeing that increased carbon in the atmosphere is actually reducing the nutrition in certain crops like maize and wheat and rice as well. So that's a problem as well. So we're seeing a lot of unexpected consequences from climate change threatening the stable food supply. What has been quite a stable food supply since the Green Revolution. The other part, I think, is just, again, another focus on water. We use 70% of our fresh water globally for agriculture. We have some improvements on how to make that more efficient with micro-irrigation, etc. But we still haven't quite solved that problem at a global scale. And and water is running out at a rapid pace in certain regions, Middle East, Africa, Asia, even parts of the United States, it's being threatened. And there's a lot of myth about the abundance of water in certain regions. In Canada, for example, there's a myth of of this abundance of water when in fact much of that water flows away from urban environments and away from agriculture environments. So it it is actually at more risk than we think. 
I think another point I want to make is knowledge security around food production. So as we've kind of industrialized agriculture and moved it away from our cities, we've seen 30 years in the developed world of increased age of farmers. That increased age means that there's actually less transfer of farms from parents to children. And so what that means is we're seeing a consolidation of farms into larger farms and the industrialization of it further, which means that we're losing the knowledge on how to plan, design and operate small scale farms. And small scale farms tend to be more diverse. They tend to be more sustainable and they actually tend to be more productive. Globally, smallholders still produce more of the total food supply than industrial food providers, even though industrial food providers have a bigger uh, cut of the total profit. So it's really important that we protect that. And that is one of the biggest threats I see. Average age in the US is 58 approximately. In Europe, it's over 60 now. Australia, it's reaching 60 as well. So we're having really um, concerning numbers as far as the loss of the knowledge to, to engage in agriculture and also the loss of the culture of saying there is viable livelihoods in agriculture. And in the opposite way, just to add to this issue of knowledge security, in the developing world, farmers are struggling to survive because of some of these climate issues, because of some of these pressures from larger producers. And so they're moving to cities and abandoning agriculture. So it's inevitable that that same trend of increased age is going to actually happen in the developing world as well as they get wealthier. So we don't have a viable solution to that yet globally. So a double whammy of both demographics and climate change at the same time. Exactly. And, and add one more thing, and that is at least across North America and some areas in Europe is the growth out and covering of great swaths of farm area with suburbs. So that yes. what used to be very productive areas for the city have been eliminated. And in Canada and parts of the United States, cities get their food from south of them or from Mexico. So uh, again, they're not really resilient in the face of any sort of perturbations and they don't have a resilient local supply. And I have, I have three, and this connects to that main issue that I saw in Vancouver. If city planners don't understand agriculture, how can they protect it? And I have three city examples briefly to, to confirm your point. Number one, Ontario, very rich agricultural province, used to be a net exporter of food. Now it's a net importer of food. Importer, yes. Okay? Uh, number two, Auckland, New Zealand. Auckland and New Zealand itself is very rocky. So the needed, you need flat land typically to grow things like leafy greens and some of these vegetable products. Most of them are grown around Auckland. Auckland is now starting to import those products as they've developed their suburbs onto that flat land. Example three, Sydney, Australia. Sydney typically has 20% of its food comes locally from within 50 to 100 miles. That's projected to be 6% by 2030 because of urbanization. So these are real problems that are not happening in one city. And if it was one city, it'd probably be okay. But it's happening globally. And everyone's saying, oh, we can just import that. So the urbanization of agriculture is not just about making it localized urbanly, but making it denser. So the, a greater number of square feet of production area or higher production per square foot or per square meter than you would have if you were doing it on a, on a typical farm. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And as you know, in urban development, we find that density is one of the major drivers for sustainability and the reduction of carbon footprint. In the context of agriculture, it's also a major driver for efficiency. And just a simple example for our listeners, if you have a small apartment versus a huge apartment, you're going to use that small apartment more wisely than your big apartment. You're going to be more efficient with your space management. The same applies to urban farms. 
So we actually have data that urban farms can be 50% more productive than outdoor farms, and they can have more diversity as they try to embrace making that space more efficient and making it more profitable. And so it's not about just saying, let's bring agriculture into the cities. It's about saying cities used to develop with or next to agriculture. We need to restore that idea in a data-driven, sustainably-minded way and bring it back to protect the resilience of our cities. Maybe you could paint a picture of what urban agriculture looks like. In my mind's eye, I have a hydroponic farm lit with LED lights of a certain frequency. (laughs) But it's broader than that, isn't it? It it could be rooftop greenhouses. It could be small plots of land. Maybe paint a picture of what urban agriculture effectively looks like in the future. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, this question came up a lot, especially in the early days of starting the Agritecture blog in 2011. And so what I did is I kind of created a, a spectrum of urban agriculture that relates to technology and investment. So just imagine a line from left to right. And on the, the kind of left side, we have what we call low tech or lower investment types of urban agriculture. Now, these are home gardens. These are soil based community gardens. These are maybe, you know, front yard lots or even park farms. Now we start to move a little bit more towards the center and we're going to start experimenting with a little bit more tech. Maybe it's a hydroponic outdoor garden in a place like California where that happens or in places like India where they have pretty good weather or Egypt where they're starting to do hydroponics on rooftops, but still exposed, not not controlled environments. But we start moving towards the center and we start to see greenhouses. Greenhouses are where we're trying to control more of the environment that can use soil or hydroponics, like you mentioned. We start to engineer an environment that we can control the variables for the plants to help them perform their best, no matter what the weather is outside. But greenhouses are still susceptible to changes in light, and they're still susceptible to maybe even other issues like pests that could come in through vents. So it's not fully controlled. If we start moving even more towards the right and we spend more money and spend more time on engineering, we can actually start to stack those levels of hydroponics. We can put them in containers. We can put them in basements. We can put them in big warehouses. But obviously, as we stack them, we're starting to cut off light, which means we're going to say, you know what? We don't actually need natural sunlight. We're going to bring in the LED lights, just like you mentioned, and control the variables for growth as precisely as possible. And that's kind of the recent decade birth of what's called vertical farming, which is these stacked cultivation systems, typically hydroponic, and completely controlled environments. And from a production perspective, that kind of embodies that spectrum. You can have another spectrum, I'm not gonna get into it now, that relates to the other uses, you know, things like social impact and hubs and various pieces, um, which can also have varying impacts and varying costs. But, but that spectrum of technology around urban agriculture is one great way to frame your thinking and look at the area around you, even as an architect or a developer and say, you know, what's gonna work here to achieve our impact and our, and our budget? Can you give listeners a sense of the relative costs per production unit between the high-tech versus the low-tech? And I guess you have to take into account real estate, but but you tell us how how you would cost compare. So if we look at that spectrum again, um, from a capital cost perspective for the equipment of these different farm types, not including renovation to space or construction of a new building... On the low tech side, you can build gardens for you know five to ten dollars a square foot. Okay, if you go towards the middle of a greenhouse, a greenhouse on the ground could be as low as twenty to forty dollars a square foot. As you move to more high tech automated greenhouses on the ground, you're looking more at forty to sixty dollars a square foot 
for high-tech automated ones, ones that reduce labor and are bigger in scale. If you move it to the rooftop, those costs go up a lot higher because it's just much more complicated to fit the right equipment onto rooftops. Rooftop greenhouses are a great idea in principle, but very difficult to implement properly and very expensive. So we're looking at 90 plus dollars per square foot for rooftop greenhouses, just for the systems, not accounting for the building or the improvements. Now, if we go towards vertical farming, again, we've, it really depends how many layers you have. But again, excluding the warehouse costs, excluding the cost to renovate an existing warehouse, just for the equipment, the lights, the hydroponics, the HVAC, the plumbing, etc., the racks that they go onto, you're looking at at least $250 per square foot for four levels of cultivation. Okay, so if you expand that to multiple levels per cultivation, even higher, like some of the bigger companies, you could be $1,000 a square foot. Now, that might work actually really well if your real estate is expensive, you don't have space for a greenhouse. So it's really about finding those right fits. But vertical farming is certainly high, high, high in CapEx relative to the others. So stepping aside from CapEx and looking at buying a head of lettuce in the grocery store, what would the difference in cost be to have a local hydroponically LED high-end vertical stacked farmed head of lettuce versus importing it from Mexico or California? Yeah, in regards to the vertical farm product, it's going to be today, let's say in the New York City or Toronto area, it's going to be probably 15 to 25% more expensive for the consumer. So, you know, why would the consumer pay that? Well, it's guaranteed pesticide free, it's guaranteed to deliver be delivered to the shelf within 24 hours or less, and it's guaranteed to be using 90 to 95% less water plus you're supporting local business, et cetera. So, you know, will the consumer pay more for that? We're seeing some evidence that, that consumers will. Now, where is the point where that cost will start to be competitive? It starts to happen as those pressures on the supply chain occur. So yeah, as, I was thinking that's, that's the real measure. It's not what yes. people will buy now. Yes. It's when California starts to get so dry that it can't produce all those crops. And so you've got supply and demand curves that kick in and all of a sudden 25% that's probably going to be less than what it is to get them from somewhere else, irrespective. Exactly. And one of the main value propositions is stability. It doesn't matter if it's summer or winter. That price is going to be the same. And the vertical farm can make a contract with you and say, this is the price no matter what. Right now, if Loblaws is buying product from Mexico versus buying it from Leamington, depending on the season, right? They probably buy from Leamington in the summer tomatoes and they probably buy from Mexico in the winter time. In the winter, right. There's supply chain and price fluctuations in that and they can't really change that price for the customers at the store all the time. Nobody wants that because consumers get confused if you see different prices all the time. That's not what they want either for their supply chain or their buying. Um, you've got other issues that might start to transform and drive vertical farming food safety. In Arizona, we had two and I think in California, we had one food safety scare within the past 16 months. Um, 18 months rather, and that has actually caused them to throw out huge amounts of romaine lettuce and different leafy green products. That's because animals run around on fields outside. That's because migrant labor isn't paid appropriately to engage in food safety properly. So controlled environments, urban farms can provide a response to that. What about the actual range of foods that can be produced? with vertical urban farms. Uh, can we produce grains like wheat, corn, and rice? Those are basic staples of life. 
So there's a couple really valid critiques of the most high-tech farms of urban agriculture, greenhouse, high-tech greenhouses and vertical farms, but vertical farms specifically. And one of them is the lack of diversity. The, the, the variety of crops that are economically viable in these farms today are limited to microgreens and leafy greens. Now, it's easy to criticize that. There's, there, is, there is an addressable market for that globally. Those plants use too much water and they're often shipped large distances. There's waste, there's pest issues, pesticide issues, there's quality issues. So I don't think it's fair to be like, well, it's, it's not going to feed the world or it's not important because there are addressable markets and those are often unsustainably grown products. But you can fairly say that it's not going to really feed the world because it's not producing calories. It's important that we get more vitamins and minerals through these leafy green products. Most of us don't eat enough of them, but that's not really going to feed the world from a calorie perspective. So let's just talk about briefly why you can't diversify beyond that yet. The reason is we're taking electricity and turning it into you know, light for the plant to grow. We're paying for every single micromole that we're putting onto the plant, and that comes at a cost. So if I'm going to grow a leafy green versus, uh, what was your question, wheat, you said? Wheat or any of the grains, any of the sort of uh, grains that sustain us. Okay. The value proposition for leafy greens are going to be significant because they take a shorter period to grow. It's the 30 days or less. Right. Um, so that creates cash flow to pay back my CapEx rapidly. Right. Meanwhile, this, this product is going to take much longer. Furthermore, this product wilts very quickly. You can notice the lack of quality very quickly while this product stores very easily. So to grow it somewhere far away and to ship it isn't that difficult. Furthermore, this product is short and can be stacked. And this product is long and requires a lot of root zone to stay stable. So that's the main reason. If a product doesn't have a value proposition to be fresh, then it's, it's going to have a difficult time having the economic justification for all of the capex of vertical farms. Well, um, well, I'm thinking down the road when we start to run into really significant problems yes. in the bread belt growing areas that are going to be crushed by climate change. Like yes. as the Hadley cells move north and south, they move into the grain growing areas of the world. Yeah. yeah. So, so can we sustain, I mean, maybe not economically right now, but technologically, will we be able to sustain ourselves? Maybe this is where we can talk about aquaponics because we can grow protein potentially. Well, let, let me answer this wheat question because it's an interesting one. I've got one more thing to add on it. Okay, so sure. I, no, so I'm just I, trying to, to wrap it together because the big question is not so much what's happening now, but when, when the shit hits going. the fan. Yeah. Right. So, so the International Baking Convention invited me to speak on vertical farming and wheat and grains. And, and I said, well, it's not really technically possible today or economically possible today. But technically, it has been done. Actually, NASA has grown these crops. There are ways to do it. You can grow dwarf varieties. But we did a calculation that if you had bread from grain products that were grown in a vertical farm, it would cost about $12 today. Now, as you mentioned, certain drivers... Reduction you mean $12 a loaf? $12 a loaf. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, 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 so that's, that, that's, the, that's the cost of that if you were to do that. So that's much more than 25% more expensive. And you probably wouldn't pay it because you probably wouldn't even notice the difference because it's a processed product. You know, we don't eat raw wheat on a consistent basis. So you, would, you wouldn't notice that value. So I think that's one way to think about it. But, you know, grains are, are the, the nutrition is going down. So barley has lost, I think, 10% in its nutritional value as a result of increased carbon in the environment. I think wheat is around 2 2% was the analysis I looked at. So, you know, that could start to catch up and justify it in certain markets. And Dixon de Pommier, one of my mentors and author of the book, The Vertical Farm, has this kind of vision for not so much stacked farms, but linear indoor farms that would grow wheat on kind of like a rotating cycle and be harvested in an automated way. 
Now there could be there could be potential for that. It hasn't been developed, hasn't been explored from a technical perspective. But I would say in 10 years, you may start to see some significant investments within this 10-year period into research about those crops for commercial purposes in certain regions. But for getting protein then, we have okay. the opportunity so for fish. So just for our audience, hydroponics refers to, you know, hydro means water and ponics really means work. So it's like where water does the work. So instead of using soil to deliver the nutrients and the oxygen that the roots need to thrive and, and absorb nutrients for the plant, you're actually using water to do so. So you can engineer different systems to do that. Now, aquaponics is a subset of hydroponics that adds an additional layer, which says instead of us bringing in mined nutrients or organic nutrients that we create, we're going to actually have a tank full of fish that produce waste. And then we're going to filter that waste and use those nutrients to feed the plants. Yeah, the so nitrogen from the waste yes, from the feces exactly. and urine. Exactly. So you're moving towards a more fully circular closed system. Now, I used to work for a water company that did aeration um, installations for aquaculture and aquaponic facilities before starting Agritecture Consulting. And in that, I visited a lot of aquaponic facilities. I love the idea. I think sustainability-wise, it's amazing. You can produce protein, you can produce vegetables, but urban agriculture and hydroponics and farming in general is extremely difficult. So when you add a second layer of complexity, meaning a totally different operational system, you need a totally different kind of talent to manage aquaculture than you do for, for, for horticulture, you actually create a very, very, very difficult business to manage. And most of the time, my clients were failing. Either the plants were dying because of the lack of stability in the filtration system, or the fish were dying because of too much density and a lack of oxygen. And so, you know, very, very difficult to manage both of those systems. So I'm quite skeptical of it for vertical farming, number one. Many vertical farming aquaponic facilities have failed. I'm more optimistic for it for greenhouses, but I think if you're in a cold climate or a seasonal climate, it's very difficult because of additional challenges. So I see a great future for aquaponics in places like India, parts of Africa, uh, around the equator, around the Mediterranean, where there's stable, um, maybe parts of California, where there's stable temperatures around the year and you can have a good access to light and greenhouses can perform well and also ones that are at larger scale. I also see potential for aquaponics as a great education tool or small scale um, education tool to teach those systems and facilitate more innovation around it. I think we need to solve the problem because aquaponics has great, great potential. But commercially, agritecture consulting has never recommended aquaponics to any of our clients because of the increased risk and likelihood of failure, unfortunately. Well, I guess that's good news for the areas of the world that are going to be hardest hit by boat drought and temperature rises. And protein, um, where they lack protein. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and where they need protein. But is it more or less a technical problem that over time can be solved? I mean, right now it's... It's not urgent that we have it because we have other sources of, of our protein, our fish protein right. and so forth. But over time, when cities need food, won't there be a sort of, well, it's difficult, but we're going to figure it out? Yes. This is how I see it. I think, I think the best way to do it in the, in the regions that would need this protein is to have what's called decoupled aquaponics systems. And these are more successful. You basically have a fish farm that operates independently and then you have a, a greenhouse that operates independently and they are next to each other and they can exchange resources, but they're not dependent upon each other 100 percent. And I visited. So you one, don't have to produce the perfect ecology in one. Exactly. It doesn't have to be perfectly precise and you supplement where needed. These systems are much, much more likely to succeed. 
the knowledge base for both of them becomes more focused and, and refined. And um, there's a couple pr projects, I think uh, Tomato Masters in Belgium, and it's uh, the, the fish farm, I forgot the name of it, but they are an amazing example of the circularity. They are, they are right next to each other. You can see them from each other and they, sh they share the resources between them. And, um, and, and it's, it's really quite effective. I think Tomato Masters uses about 40% of its nutrients for its enormous greenhouse facility comes from the fish farm. So it's a cost equation plus a development of technology. So there's a potential there. Absolutely. How far out is the tipping point when urban agriculture will be a mainstream mode of food production? I mean, then guesstimate on that one. <laughs> well, what's your crystal ball say? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's important to look at um, history to answer this question and also look globally. So as, as we developed cities and become wealthier, we've pushed agriculture out of the cities. We used to have more gardens and farms and knowledge in our cities. And if we look in Asia, um, the FAO still estimates, maybe they haven't updated recently, that 50% of Asian households grow some kind of food and use it for bartering and trading. That is significant. That's not a tiny percentage. That is a big part of a food sovereignty and, and localized food system. The FAO estimates that 10% of our global food supply today is grown from urban farms and urban gardens. So globally, it's pretty significant. Now, recent studies have shown that in, in, in many cities in the United States, 70 to 100% of the vegetables could be grown within 100 miles of a city. That's, so, so within urban areas, a recent study from 2018 found that about 10% could be grown in cities itself. Um, globally, and that could be maintained. And that's about $180 billion in value from the food product and the ecosystem services globally. If we look historically now, certain um, examples show us that we need a crisis to drive urban agriculture forward. So when Cuba was cut off of, from its supply of food from, from Russia in the blockade, it implemented an Organicos program where they forced basically residents to grow different products on their rooftops, organic farms, and they created a socialist trading system between that. And they were able to actually become food independent and resilient to that. Now, what's interesting now is that as Cuba's opened up, that system is basically eroding. People are importing product. They're finding easier ways to do it. They don't want to do the work. There's no more support for that program. So that food sovereignty is now at risk again. If we look at London and, and the United States during World War II, victory gardens victory were a response gardens, right. to supply chains. So, you know, we, we as a human race don't tend to solve the problems before millions of people suffer. And I think in the case of urban agriculture, that is also the reality, which is why agritecture's work and mission is to grow and diversify and share the models for success. Things like the typology, things like workshops for, 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 for schools and for cities and architecture firms, things like our new software product we're launching. That's why we're doing that. So when we need to adapt, there's a lot more data and availability than there was before. So we'll have to see food riots before we see the technology being taken seriously. I mean, I, I really hate to be a realist, but, uh, but that's what I am. And, and, you know, early on in my sustainability career, I had a choice. Am I going to focus on mitigation or am I going to focus on adaptation? And I made the conscious decision that I could make a bigger impact in the long term, focusing on adaptation. What are the most important lessons you've learned from your work in your role as a founder and now director of agritecture about how to both increase awareness of the key issues related to climate change and its impacts on our food supply and how we can best design to adapt to them? 
I think there's a couple really important lessons that I've learned in this journey. I think number one is that sustainability is not an end. It's not point A, point B. It's a constant process of improvement. And so it really is about awareness, constant learning, constant sharing and collaboration. And I think that's very different than a lot of other industries as they see um, you know, achieving success. For us, it's about a constant um, process of improvement. Um, I think another piece is that, you know, it's so exciting from a business perspective to get involved in solving climate change issues because business is about finding some kind of gap or problem and then finding a solution to that. And I think in today's world, especially with millennials um, and even some baby boomers that want to kind of get into a new career, um, climate change and sustainability has a huge opportunity for that. I mean, you can design a better wheel or a better watch, or you can find a solution to, you know, migrants and, and food security or, you know, ad adaptation to climate change or in my case, a lack of knowledge on adaptation to climate change in urban agriculture. And so what I try to do is I try to tell people, you know, you don't need to be an expert in sustainability necessarily to get started. You could be an expert in marketing or law or engineering and apply that to the sustainability challenges after you observe and really have a lot of success and impact, um, both financially and, and, and socially. What about the most promising urban agriculture policies and strategies and technologies? you're seeing out there that are gonna help deal with the, the impacts of climate change? Yeah, I was thinking about that question a lot. I'm going to Canberra, uh, the capital of Australia next month to speak as the keynote at their first sustainable food conference. And it's they're trying to create Canberra as an example to other cities. So my job is to bring together some of the best policies that we've seen around the world. So to answer this question, I'm gonna kind of tell you the five steps that we've broken it down to that successful cities do to, to accelerate urban agriculture. Number one is analyze. What's the current state of food access? What's the current state of properties that are vacant? And what's the current state of existing farms? Are they successful? What's their scale? What are they growing? So number one, you have to analyze and benchmark where you are as a city and the, the issues that you're trying to solve. Number two, you need to recognize. What you'll find is that most of these farms are under the table, they're gorilla, they're not um, given the right zoning uh, re requirements. They're maybe not having all their staff registered. So you need to actually start to recognize them and give them value as well. Number three is incentivize. You need to create competitions and create specific tax incentives for vacant lots or in certain parts of the city where there's a lack of food access and incentivize new entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs and nonprofits to respond to those gaps and create a flow of that. And so the city of Paris is a great example of this with their pariculture competition. Right, They've achieved right. 16 hectares of new urban farming space from this competition in, in three years, which is incredible. Their goal is 30 hectares. So, you know, that's incredible. Step four is now in the future you wanna preserve. You want to make sure that you protect the ones that might be threatened. So as you as urban agriculture becomes more commercialized, actually property prices may go up um, in certain parts and, and there may be threats to the vacant land where the farms are. You need to find ways to preserve these. In New York City, community gardens don't have permanent leases. They have temporary leases and they can be kicked out anytime with 30 days notice. It's very difficult to kick out a farm. It's just to move a farm is very difficult. So you need to preserve what you have already, because then you risk the capitalist infrastructure and model to push out the, the farms that are providing some of those impacts at the lower tech level, more social, more biodiversity. You know, you don't want cities just full of vertical farms. You want diverse urban farming systems. The last one is adapt. Have a director of urban agriculture, have a leadership structure where you respond and basically repeat these steps 
to adapt and improve the flow. Again, going back to that process of sustainability as opposed to the end of sustainability. And those are really the five steps that I'm gonna present at the Food and the Capital event and, um, and share specific examples as I did today. Yeah, that sounds like a recipe for cities to follow in order to develop more effective food resilience. What about machine learning, big data, artificial intelligence, new technologies? How could you see them leveraging our ability to cope with climate change and, and food supply? Yeah, it's a really exciting question as well. So I think there's two ways. First, I'll start at the kind of individual um, farm level. So farms, you know, constantly need to improve and, and get better. And often there's a really lack of, of recording data uh, properly and, and improving. It's very much like a culture of, oh, the grower knows how to do it. It's kind of the art of growing as opposed to a lot of the science of it. And so, you know, if you lose that grower, the productivity gets affected. And, and so we need to make that smarter. And so there's a lot of new sensors that are coming into greenhouses and, and even outdoor farms, GIS data, satellite data. And so we're starting to be able to analyze that and find sweet spots to respond to changes in the environment, both outdoors and in greenhouses. Now, the more high tech we go, the more sensors there are. If you look at companies like Aero Farms, there's thousands of sensors across their farm and they can actually develop precise uh, plant recipes to create different models. And they can use AI to estimate possible scenarios to make decisions about engineering, about light, about temperature, about these various pieces. That can also drive automation to respond to pest outbreaks or to respond to issues in the system itself. So there's a lot of potential for that. And as you get more high tech, there's kind of the big data. You know, you need millions of data points to have big data work. And that rarely happens at a small farm scale, but does start to happen when you have satellite data and when you start to have millions of, or thousands of sensors in vertical farms but it rarely happens on the low tech side on an individual farm level. Now, at the more macro level for cities, I think that cities are starting to really use AI and big data in interesting ways for things like transportation, for example. There's a lot of cities now that are analyzing their transportation data and making their systems more efficient. What I'd like to see in the future is as these smarter farms that produce data get more active, and as we start to understand vacant spaces from a satellite perspective for our cities, and we start to gather data on real estate and rich open data sets, I would like to see cities have their own AI to respond to food safety issues, to respond to food resilience issues. So they should understand supply chain. They should understand you know, how many young people are going into agriculture. What is the current status of vacant spaces and what are the crops we may want to grow on them? And ideally in the future, data would be used to say if an entrepreneur in Toronto wants to build a farm, Instead of them growing microgreens, they should be incentivized to grow tomatoes because our big data set tells us that there's an available space and a need for tomatoes in our city, thus making the system more resilient and the entrepreneur more resilient as well. So, you know, I think that, that for planning and adaptation, as these, these farms start to produce more data combined with, with, with already available city data, we'll start to be smarter about tracking that. So improving efficiency, effectiveness, and resilience. That makes a lot of sense. Yes. Who are some of the thinkers on sustainability in agriculture that you particularly admire and what key insights or ideas resonate with you from them? Yeah, I mean, I have a couple that I want to bring up. You know, most of them are in my world. They may not be big time um, thinkers, but one of them that was really instrumental for me is a professor at Columbia University where I studied Sarah Chosum. And I went in kind of doughy eyed about vertical farming in my early days of Columbia. I said, oh, vertical farming is awesome. I was blogging about it. And she 
who's teaching the history of agriculture in the United States. And she showed me how through time, technology has always been a double-edged sword in agriculture, right? As soon as we got mechanized equipment for farms and they weren't using, you know, kind of hand hose, they now had to call a mechanic and buy gas, which created new problems. So, you know, she really taught me to be more conservative about the hype that can, that can occur around sustainability technologies. And thus, I think, really made me a better sustainability leader myself and a sustainability thinker. Another one that's not really in sustainability is George Friedman. He's the author of The Next 100 Years. Right. I used to, I used to think about, okay, we have to feed 9 billion people or 10 billion people by 2050. If you look at some of the data on demographics, you know, we may actually have population decline around 2050. And I think that's a really interesting contrasting perspective to the kind of alarmist attitude that happens sometimes in the sustainability world. And so I liked looking at the trends in context in different parts of the world and the pressures that are happening from a political structure and how that might affect demographics. And demographics is a really key part of sustainability that I think is not talked about enough. We just talk about population growth and urbanization, but what kind of population growth and what kind of urbanization and where is it happening? That's the nuance we need to get into. And, and George Friedman kind of did that for me a little bit. I think another one for me is, he's a young guy like me, his name is Felipe Vieira, and he started a nonprofit called Renature Foundation. And they basically uh, do what we do at Agritecture, but from a more nonprofit perspective, just on agroforestry. And he is such a good advocate for it and so inspiring that he's helped me think about lower tech solutions that can be more abundant. I used to think that only vertical farms and greenhouses can be really productive. But in fact, there are regenerative agriculture strategies that they take longer to be productive, right? It's not like you're growing huge yields right away. It may take four or five years, but actually by restoring the soil, you can actually create an abundance that can really stand competitively against some of these more high-tech approaches. So now I'm trying to work with him to say, how can we commercialize that? How can we make that more appealing to investors and entrepreneurs that want money fast? But I think he's a really good inspiration, and, and Renature Foundation is a great organization to follow as well. So those are some. Uh, we'll put those in the show notes. Thank you. In your current role, tell us some of the more effective and consequential ideas you're seeing and hearing about now that are inspiring you and, and you see have future important consequences. Yeah, I think um, you know some of the ones that, that are really making a difference in the vertical farming sector are just automation. You know, labor remains to be the highest cost for, for farms, especially urban farms. And so, you know, for, for, to get, for us to get that cost to be more competitive, automation is the way to do that. And so that's the conversation across the board in this industry. Another one which is a little bit more controversial is breeding and genetics. Um, with CRISPR and with obviously the big history of breeding in, in the agriculture sector, that's something that can make a huge difference in controlled environment agriculture, vertical farms and greenhouses. Today, we take field grown lettuce and we put it indoors and we try to grow it and create the environment for that. Instead, we could actually breed plants that require less light or breed plants that require less space, thus making the economics of indoor farming much more viable. So I think those two things, just because I'm, I'm very focused on vertical farming these days with my clients, those two things are really going to be the kind of game changers for this space. I do think that the other thing that's being really talked about that's interesting for me is, as I mentioned, regenerative agriculture. We are starting to see more investment go into it. We are starting to see more awareness that some of these high-tech farms have a high carbon footprint in certain regions, so are not necessarily you know, ecological, which is creating an awareness around investors and entrepreneurs to say, hey, let's take another look at soil. And I think that's a positive discussion. And 
And something we're going to be talking about, we're actually doing a big event in Toronto, December 1st and 2nd, called the Agriculture Exchange. And we've, we've specifically included regenerative agriculture to bring light to some of those emerging trends and that data that's being shown. So our, our attendees have, have a broader awareness than just saying, hey, technology will solve agriculture. Uh, moving to the bigger picture, um, what about the huge challenge of the increasing numbers of climate refugees as the impacts of climate change increase? The UN is now forecasting that there will be 250 million climate refugees by 2050 at the current rate of climate change. And the UN projections are typically very conservative. This will be one of the most critical challenges the world faces in the future, I think. Food supply will be a huge issue. You and your team are currently working on a number of strategies to help feed climate refugees. Can you talk more about this? This is such an important issue and so critical. And in my political science studies, I actually thought I was going to go into diplomacy. And I did an internship at the International Organization for Migration back in 2005. And then we were estimating 350 million approximately refugees by that period. So I think I think those numbers are conservative. I think it's going to be higher. And there's so many problems related to that, including that there's no legal recognition for refugees for climate change, even today, since that date. So you have to- Yes, re refugees are only categorized as political refugees. Yes, political or conflict, in some places economic, yeah. but, but that's why there's no place and they don't accept them and all of that. And if you look at the details of even Syria, and if you look at the details of, of, of what happened in Rwanda in the past, there are environmental aspects of this. You know, conflict and climate change are, are very related in most of these cases, and it's a very fragile system. So we do not have the infrastructure. We do not have the, the, the policies in place to solve this problem. So I think the reality is that these refugee camps and refugee cities are going to be a common part of the future. And so what agritecture is doing is it's trying to take the data it's developed for certain permaculture and low-tech greenhouse strategies and democratize them. So we are working with one of our partners in Lebanon, and we have developed an open source refugee farm model, which will be available to various nonprofit organizations. We have entered it in for a food vision prize that IDEO and the Rockefeller Foundation are doing. We just found out we're finalists. And our, our plan is to look at different regions in the world and develop open source refugee farming models that can create livelihoods and resilience for these communities. It's not just that they lack food, it's that they lack nutrition because they do get food from various humanitarian aid support, but they lack the minerals and nutrients they need. They also lack enough activities. So we see these farms as really amazing community and gathering places. This is not gonna be easy. Number one, we are trying to find the money to build the farms. That's not gonna be easy. It's much easier to say, let's buy a bunch of tents or food kits than it is to say, let's take five years to restore the soil and create a resilient place for these refugees when nobody really wants them to stay, right? They want it to be temporary. Yeah, they, in, in fact, what it's doing is it's making it a more permanent encampment, which is a lot, the localities the localities which are don't, want, don't want them there. So they don't want it to be too easy. Right. They don't want it to be too easy and they don't want it to be permanent. Yeah. And that's, that's the yeah. problem. But I think there's going to be a moment or there has to be a time and maybe these Farms Not Arms projects will show that. They'll show that these people can contribute to the community. They can produce food for the community. They can restore the soil. They can be active participants in the community. And that's maybe the reality and the hope that we're trying to make happen. But that's um, farms.arms and we're about six months into that and 
Um, it's a pro bono project that agriculture is doing, and we, we hope to continue to push that forward with the first project being in the Bekaa Valley, Lebanon. What do you think is missing from the discussion of climate change and its impacts on food supply? Are there any other questions or better questions we should be asking ourselves? I think that there are still there's still so much more discussion and maybe marketing and psychology work that can be done around consumption. Right now, a lot of our work is trying to say, how can we innovate and solve problems to deal with the new normal, which is I want to consume strawberries in December, no matter where I am. And I want to eat only 70% of my food and throw 30% of it out. But around food waste, around consumption, these are areas where I don't necessarily work, but I think there's a lot more work that can be done there. Campaigning from governments, really smart marketing from some of the best agencies in the world, celebrities communicating this. These are things that could actually make a difference to change our inexcusable culture of constant consumption that we've really inherited from... Consumption and waste. Consumption and waste. That we've inherited really from yeah. the, you know, the, the abundance that existed in the 80s and that we've kind of just, we've kept. So that's probably still a huge, huge gap. You know, you can do all you want to produce more and more and more food and solve that. But, you know, you could also just try and use less. Yeah. And I suspect that as the costs rise by 20 or 30 percent, then that will be almost an automatic response. Who's missing from the discussion? Are there people who should be we should be paying more attention to that are currently not participating I think that in the context of agriculture and the new excitement around agriculture technology, typically women and people of color are not in the discussion enough. If we look at vertical farming, there's only one majorly funded vertical farming company that has a female CEO. If we look at vertical farming events, they typically are full of you know mantles, same thing in ag tech events, um, and, and that needs to change. And the people of color issue is, is even more important because these are the communities that have already been experienced things like food apartheid, as Karen Washington, a vocal um, woman of color, talks about, where it's not just about food deserts, uh, but it's actually about specifically designed race-related strategies to exclude certain communities from access to food and keep them in the lower tiers of economic wealth. So there's a lot more work needed to be done in those areas, and, and they need voice at the table. So I'd like to see more uh, women and people of color, incubators and accelerators and, and training programs related to the space, because globally, the irony is that there's more female farmers than male farmers, and most of them are smallholders and working on subsistence farms. And so women and often minorities feed the world, if we look at a global scale, and yet now we're kind of moving forward. And, and, and in some ways, and I'm doing my best to change the world, but as a white male and a privileged male, in some ways, we are not intentionally, but we are um, unintentionally co-opting some of the urban agriculture work that happened before, which was about responding to, you know, we've been excluded from the system, so we have to grow food, you know, on our rooftop or on our vacant lot because we can't afford the food or there's no, there's no fresh food nearby. So I'm certainly not doing that intentionally, but I've been criticized for being involved in urban agriculture by minority communities. And I'm, I, as I've been in the industry more and interact with those communities, I've recognized why a little bit, why they feel that way, and that I have a responsibility to bring voice to that by having more people of color speak at my events and having more women encouraged to speak at the events that I'm engaged in. 
So these are big challenges, not only technical challenges, but social challenges. So what do you think? Are, are we going to be able to get our act together as a species to really deal with these problems? What gives you hope? What keeps you going when things look dark, Henry? Well, as I said earlier, I'm a realist. I, I don't believe we can mitigate climate change. I think we are going to experience more scarcity, more storms, more suffering before we, we respond and adapt but what gives me hope is that I see more and more entrepreneurs all around the world of all sexes and ages and races motivated to solve this problem. And I think that they're doing that even before it's gotten to the critical point. And so that gives me hope. That gives me hope that there is a human nature to collaborate and not to be greedy that we can access. And with the right opportunities and pathways from those who already have privilege, whether it's cities with money that can create incentives or investment funds, those people can really make a big difference because I found that whenever I open up and I say, hey, here's an opportunity, the response is overwhelming from people that want to get involved and help. So we just need to create those pathways. We need to create more pathways for social entrepreneurship in response to climate change. And that's how we can respond quicker. But overall, I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. What advice would you offer to listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference and meeting these challenges? So, you know, for the past 10 years, I've been very focused on urban agriculture and local food. So my advice typically revolves around that. But I think you can take this advice and apply it to something else. So there are really three things you need to do to break into the urban ag industry or let's say the, the, the sustainability industry. Number one, you need to get hands-on experience. You need to volunteer in the sector you're interested in. For me, urban farming until I volunteered in community gardens, until I helped a greenhouse become winter resilient, until I worked in a hydroponic farm, I couldn't get past the job interviews and get a position in a company. Hands-on experience in the sector is so important. So invest six months to 12 months if you can in volunteer opportunities, put the extra time in on weekends and get hands-on experience to boost your confidence. Number two, build your archive. Data is really important. You need to be able to talk about the numbers how many farms, how much yield, what crops, where is climate change going? What is the demographic of my city? What is, if you're interested in waste, what's the data around that? And what, what you can do is you can just build that into a Google Drive document and store that and look at it and review it and make that part of your practice. It's gonna make you really strong and confident at events and it's gonna help you be more analytical. And I did that for urban farming and that became the foundation of our urban agriculture consulting methodology at Agritecture. So it was a huge asset to me. Number three, you need to brand yourself. A lot of people really struggle to put a consistent brand out there. And the fact is that humans have a very short attention span. So if they don't remember you, then they can't recommend you. And so you need to create a brand that says that there's something you can communicate in under a minute, under two minutes, so that somebody can also regurgitate that to someone the else. The elevator pitch. And get you business. Get that elevator pitch. And, and my advice is to, to develop one, observe the people you like, think about your own values, and stick to it for six months. Don't change it. You need to come up with your strategy and stick to it. Too many people pivot early and a brand is about pushing and repeating and being consistent. And so I would go to events and say, hey, I'm an urban agriculture blogger. I'd love to learn about your company and feature it. And that's how I started getting consulting deals. And that's how I started getting my reputation out there. And, and that was very effective for me. And I hope it'll be effective for you. Thanks. That's very concrete. And finally, to wrap these interviews up, I like to ask three sort of rapid fire questions. <laughs> um, are you up for that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so first question is, 
What books related to these issues do you most often recommend or gift to other people? So the one I keep recommending is uh, Hungry City by Carolyn Steele. It's about this topic of cities and, and you know historically how they're involved in agriculture, what the reality is of, of buying food in cities now, and it's a great book and a great gift. Cool. Second question. If you had the power to implement one change, one innovation, or one policy in cities around the world that would have the effect of significantly increasing the sustainable food supply for those cities and helping cities adapt to climate change, what would it be and why? Easy. Let's bring back agriculture zoning into cities. Cities are not just residential, commercial, industrial. They should have agriculture as a recognized zone in every city around the world. Cool. Smart. And third question, if you could publish a full-page spread in the Sunday New York Times or of anything you wanted, written or graphic, what would it be? If I had a lot of money as well and I could pay for this ad and some No, 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 it was paid it. for. You just <laughs> you just have to okay. produce the content. Okay, I guess it would be a picture of a really abundant and diverse garden. And I would say victory gardens, not only for wartime, and have a link to a site where you can learn and develop your own. It sounds like you should start doing that. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe they'll give it to you. That's cool. Yeah. Is there anything that you would like to ask of our listeners? Yeah. I mean, if you have any, um, I mean, I, honestly, I have, I, I guess I have an ask for you from a consumption perspective. And it's also a reminder to all of us when you shop, whether it's a restaurant or whether it's at a supermarket, your dollars or your euros or your whatever you're paying, that's a vote. You are voting. You are saying, we value cheap. We value packaged. We value pesticides. Or you're saying, we value organic. We value local. We value family-owned. We value pesticide-free. Try to take an extra minute when it comes to food to just vote with your dollars. That's the biggest thing you could do to change your awareness and get involved in it. And this is a reminder to me as well. I'm not perfect here either. But all of us, that's what I, I want to ask you to do. That's very concrete. And, and I think uh, something people can actually put into real practice. Finally, what are the social media links listeners can find you at? We'll put these in the show notes. Great. Yeah. So our main um, blog and Twitter and Instagram is agritecture. So architecture and agriculture. And then uh, my individual one, if you want to watch my journeys as I travel the world, visiting different farms is the agritect. So like an architect, but agritect. And that's on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn, Henry Gordon Smith, if you want to connect. And I'm always available for introductory conversations about urban agriculture from a consulting perspective. If you have something you want to brainstorm or talk about, I'm happy to give you 15 minutes of my time. Thanks so much, Henry. We'll put those in the show notes. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Craig. Really great questions and love your podcast. Cheers. Bye-bye. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we've discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website and by sponsoring the podcast on our Patreon sponsor page at patreon.com forward slash tfcipodcast. This podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support from people like you. So... If you find our podcast interesting and valuable, please consider becoming a patron. Your sponsorship will not only help us cover the cost of production, but we will also be spending 50 cents of every sponsorship dollar to plant trees. To do this, we have formed a partnership with Community Forest International, who will not only be planting seedlings for you, but taking care of them to make sure they continue to grow and absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. 
So please head over to the Patreon page and become a sponsor. Until next time, thanks for listening.